Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. The mammalian brain which we are heir to, has to accomplish two drastically incompatible capabilities at the same time to keep us alive. One quality is the ability to focus attention very narrowly on accumulating resources, food, so to pick berries, to find things to build shelter. We have to look through the whole world around us and focus our attention narrowly on just certain things that we need to acquire, grasp, take with us so that we can stay warm in the winter, food so that we can eat. And uh, this kind of attention is very narrowly focused and it requires a lot of conscious supervision. But there's another kind of awareness that we have to be capable of which is entirely different. We need to have a broad vigilance for threats and dangers and for sources of security. Now that kind of attention is very broad. It's not narrow and fixated. We have to basically be aware of everything around us, at least for the bulk of our species history and the bulk of the species from which we evolved. We had to be able to sustain a a sort of global awareness without any preconceptions being able to spot anything that would either enhance or deplete our state of our survival. So one kind of attention has to be very narrow, sustained, focused, conscious. Another has to have no preconceptions, be open and just be monitoring what keeps us safe. So over the course of evolution, from mammalian to primate to homo sapien, what happened is the one hemisphere of the brain largely became responsible for the narrow focused attention. And the other hemisphere became responsible for the broad, sustained, open, vigilant awareness for anything that affected our survival. One hemisphere became responsible not only for this narrow focused uh, awareness but also for the capability of developing language. The other became responsible in its essential task of keeping us alive by looking for things that are of threat and looking for things that would provide security. It became responsible for all of our emotions and for all of the signals that are sent to us through our bodies, our feelings, and so forth. In most of us, the left hemisphere of the brain is responsible for ideas, language, for uh, certainly the right brain plays a role. It certainly plays a very big role in metaphors, but any kind of direct representational concrete connotative language where you're, you have something in mind that you're talking about, 
you are using, by and large, circuits of your left hemisphere. And your right hemisphere, over the course of evolution, became a hemisphere that works pre-consciously. In other words, we're not conscious of much of its uh, activities. And the results of all of its awareness, which is happening in the background beneath consciousness, is sent to us through feelings and emotions. And all of these signals that the right hemisphere is sending to us are basic messages telling us how safe we are. That's what emotions, that's what feelings are. They are survival messages that say something is either beneficial, we can relax, settle in, this person is safe, I can connect. And so the right hemisphere, right orbital frontal, using the insula, using air regions of the uh, ventral vagal nervous system, relaxes and says, okay, I can connect with this person, I can joke, I can be creative, I can bond. And it relaxes your heartbeat and it relaxes your blood pressure and your uh, essentially the uh, circulation and it uh, is a rest and digest state. But if on the other hand, unconsciously your right hemisphere, I should say pre-consciously because it happens before your awareness, in quickly scanning the room when you're not even aware of it, it scans so quickly you're not even aware how often you are neurocepting safety or danger cues. It's a little flick of the eye while we're sustaining awareness with the left hemisphere focusing on something once in a while the right hemisphere will have the eyes take in the room, listen for ambient sounds, have any kind of cue for suddenly we're not safe or we are safe. This right hemisphere is very often it's scanning their body language, their tone of voice, their facial expressions, their movements, they everything else. And it's doing all that pre-consciously. And then it's sending a message to you telling you you're either safe, which we just talked about, or it's saying, I'm not safe. This is not good. And it will tighten muscles. It will contract. It will release the vagal break. The heart rate will climb. The, there'll be tension. There'll be impulse, uh, what they call action potential, sent to muscles to ready you to mobilize, to take an action. Your sympathetic nervous system is engaged. And that state, whether it's fight or flight or whatever, is translated to us as emotions, feelings and emotions. They're messages pertaining to our survival. So what happens when we have these emotions, these feelings, is that they are trying to tell us to do something. When we feel this impulse to run, it's basically, or we're feeling this tightness in our belly, this like, you know, a ramping up of our breathing, and a, our, our attention is now looking for places to go, and we're feeling our, um, our breath become shallow and the hairs in the back of our neck. 
your body, your right hemisphere is saying it is, and your midbrain is saying it's time to leave, right? And hopefully your conscious mind will eventually get the message and understand it's time to, to, to leave a situation. Now, everything would work great were it not for the one uh, significant hurdle, which is that as part of uh, socialization, which is a good thing, but uh, socialization became largely founded on language, language skills, which are left hemispheric. And at one point in our life, when we were very young as children, we realized that as we acquired language and the ability to fantasize and create little narratives in our heads, uh, all of which again are largely primarily organized by the left hemisphere, which is very, very disembodied and likes to represent experience and words and images, we discovered that rather than sit and have to feel our feelings, which in childhood are terrifying, because we're far more embodied, we're far more actually right hemispheric until we, uh, until around four or five. But when we acquire language and the left hemisphere really goes online and really starts to control our conscious awareness, we become much more comfortable living up in our thoughts and in our ideas and in our the little mental movies which we can replay after we have confusing events. The left hemisphere, the, which is known in, by some neuroscientists as the interpreter, has the ability to represent the whole flood of experiences in life, the sensations, the sounds, the everything, and turn it into a series of narrative images that replay this, the, our, our life experiences is a very simple story. We can essentially, after we're walking down the street and suddenly we see a commotion and there's uh, all this stuff going on, we can then, in the aftermath, turn all these confusing array of stimuli into a very simple narrative that we can repeat in our heads to make sense of what just happened. If we have a trauma or a significant startling event, again, we can replay it again and again in our minds until we can turn it into an inner story that creates a felt sense of safety because now we have this sense that we can figure out what happens and we're less in our bodies, we're less aware of the feelings that have been evoked by a overwhelming experience and so we're essentially disconnecting from the overwhelming stimuli in, in choosing instead a representation. We do this all the time. When we feel something really good has happened, instead of necessarily sitting and just feeling the experience of joy, it can be very easy to turn it into a kind of egoic, grandiose story where we construct a sense of, of, uh, of uh, replaying all of our endeavors and coming up with a very pleasing narrative to it. When something really sad happens, we lose an attachment figure or a friend. We 
are caught up in a disappointing breakup or a relationship that is collapsing, the instead of feeling the grief, which has a very important message for us, just like joy, we can get lost, of course, in stories of self-pity because it feels safer to, uh, to align ourselves and fixate on the, re the recitation of what happened in our heads. This happened and then that happened and turning it all into this narrative rather than just sit and feel sad after a breakup. We can repeat again and again what happened, what our ex did, how, how disappointing their behavior was, and uh, I had other stories of, oh, I'm never going to find someone now, or I'm going to give up, or whatever. And all of that, all of that inner narration, that inner conceptual discursive thought, plays a very significant role. What it does is it cuts off the full processing of the grief. All emotions carry, again, significant survival messages. Grief is telling us to mourn, to adapt to an attachment loss, to withdraw from our activities for a while, to realign to our shifted sense of uh, capabilities and our changing status. Because in much of human history, if you lost an attachment figure, a partner, it would have a significant, uh, uh, it, it would lead to a significant shift in your tribal status and how much you could participate in accumulating goods for the tribe and so forth. So the grief was there to tell us to withdraw, to diminish our activities and to adjust to our, our new status in the tribe. Fear is obviously a message for us to leave a dangerous situation or relationship. Anger is a vital, evolutionarily developed message telling us that we need to set boundaries in relationships or need to change the dynamics of a relationship that we're in that is causing a heightened activation of our sympathetic nervous system. Whenever somebody acts in a way that breaks our tribal expectations or our expectations of attachment, we expect to be soothed, comforted, seen, understood, not judged, and instead we get something that violates that, it actively triggers our sympathetic nervous system. And that's good, that's healthy. It's triggering the sympathetic nervous system, which is a mobilization state, which is telling us, do fucking something. Don't sit around and experience this again. Anger is not a mistake. Our emotions have been developed over millions upon millions upon millions of years. In contrast to logical schematic thought has been around for maybe 20,000, 30,000 years. Flawed. So emotions are meant to be, one, felt. They are body states that are supposed to arise fully and be completely embodied, literally to be felt, not just cut off, but literally to be angry or to be sad or to be frightened or to be joyous and happy or to be confused or to be disgusted. That's an emotion. That's one of the core emotions to feel, 
disgust, and they're all healthy. They're all adaptive. No emotion is a mistake. But what happens is we cut off the flow, the somatic flow of an emotion, and we start living in repeating the story of what someone has done to us rather than feel angry just as an embodied state. If we turn it instead to a narrative where we replay that shithead, I can't believe he did that, in our minds instead of just allowing ourselves to be in the body of anger. What happens is we are actually cutting the full expression of a sympathetic nervous state right in the middle. And we stay actually in a chronic stress state because we actually haven't allowed it to fully express itself. And it's only when emotions have fully expressed themselves that they dissipate. If we try to cut off grief by, instead of allowing ourselves just to mourn and be sad and cry, we instead cut it off by drinking or just reciting uh, stories of victimization or self-pity, what happens is the grief is cut off and grief is actually a dorsal parasympathetic state that leads to depression if you try to cut it off, if you don't let it fully express itself and then dissipate. So all emotions are seeking to be fully expressed in the body so that they can be known and it's only after they are felt and known that they dissipate. So that's the first part of processing any emotion. It has to be not cut off, it has to be fully felt so that it can discharge. And if you'd like to read about this, there's some great neuropsychologists I could happily recommend. I don't want to like bombard you with it, but if you're interested, just ask to me. Uh, question time. So, but there's a second thing that uh, emotions need. They don't only need to be felt, which is the first part, they also need to be acted upon, right? They're not just, hey, get frightened, they're, also, they're saying run. They're not just, uh, you know, just be happy. They're inclining us to dance, sing, express our happiness, bond even deeper. They're seeking an adaptive action. Disgust is encouraging us to expel something or get away from something that's causing the disgust. Shock is telling us to stop and put down everything and to take in and grasp the, uh, something that is overwhelming that doesn't fit into our essential experiential base and to talk to other people and try to make sense of it. And anger is telling us to change the dynamics of a relationship or uh, to confront injustice if it's anger at societal injustices in the world. So it can be anger at systemic abuses, but for tonight I'm going to be talking about relational anger, anger we have at people in our lives. And all anger is telling us not just to allow ourselves to feel it so that it can finally, we, it can be known, its messages can be understood and then dispersed, but it wants us to take an action which means to change how we engage with the person, to set boundaries, to change the rules, to say, you know what, that's unacceptable. 
to stand up for ourselves. And the problem is, is with resentments, we cut off everything that emotions are trying to tell us. Instead of setting a boundary, instead of changing the dynamics, we pretend that we have by reciting the story in our heads and sometimes visualize, I know I do this, I, I assume you have at times, visualizing what we're going to say to that person if we see them again, or reciting the outrage, but we don't actually do the take on the adaptive action that the emotion has been trying to signal us to do. And so what keeps resentments happening again and again and again is that instead of feeling the anger and then taking an action and saying, no, I'm not going to put up with this. I'm not going to be a part of this. If you want to have a relationship with me, it has to be under these ground rules, stating our needs cleanly, <coughs> knowing what doesn't make us feel safe and communicating that. Until we take the adaptive action, resentments will come again and again and again. I mean, yeah, resentments, because we haven't done anything to address the underlying anger. The resentment is simply a representation of, an, of a somatic emotional message. It's the representation, the thoughts that distract us from the felt message and the adaptive behaviors will keep us locked in this cut-off, activated state where we will become more and more guarded and more and more uh, unable to relax. There'll be more cortisol in our system, which has damaging effects. It'll become difficult for us to uh, down-regulate into rest and engage, which is the, power, the, the ventral uh, vagal nerves. So the more we don't fun, do the work of processing the anger, and taking the adaptive action, the more we stay locked in this underlying level of armoredness that keeps us mistrusting and it makes it more and more difficult for us to let go and bond with new people. So, um, where the fuck am I? I was just... <laughs> so, Yes, to for uh, again for to process emotions, we have to feel them. Totally acknowledge the embodied message, because they, all emotions are signals from the right hemisphere that want to be felt. That's how they communicate. And two, they need to be acted upon. That's it. Not complex. Um, unfortunately, in a lot of spiritual circles, there's this sort of pathologizing of anger. And there's this kind of message that anger is somehow maladaptive. It's not. Anger is not hatred. Anger is just a survive, uh, an emotional survival message. There's nothing wrong with it. And very often spiritual teachers talk about how lovely forgiveness is. And forgiveness is terrific, but never if it precedes actually processing the anger itself and taking the actions to protect ourselves. Trying to forgive someone while we are still in an abusive relationship or in a relationship where our needs are not being met or where we're not being treated with respect or where we're not uh, in any way 
being seen is not a spiritual practice, it's a spiritual bypass. A spiritual bypass is something that sounds nice and spiritual, but it really actually is a sidestep around doing the real necessary work of growth, which is always difficult and always entails risk. Another thing about uh, the adaptive messages, the adaptive actions that, um, that anger is sending is we tend to very often, the people I work with and counseling, there's this uh, kind of black and white where either somebody doesn't really want to address unskillful behaviors, they just sit around and get angry about it and talk with other people about it, but they don't change the relationship at all. Or B, they go to the other extreme of cutting off the person. Well, if that person's going to treat me that way, fuck them, I'm never going to see them again, kiss my ass goodbye, be on your way. And the problem with that is numerous. Cut off is only appropriate in situations where we've been abused, where there's no possibility of adult adaptive behaviors leading to a new shift in the dynamic of the relationship. Um, there's actually been studies and family systems therapies about how an effectual uh, cutoff can be if it's overused. Now again, if somebody's truly narcissistic, abusive, uh, sociopathic, then, then yeah, cut them off. But wherever possible, the best route is to use the anger as a fuel to essentially go into what could be a conflictual conversation and confront someone in a way that's saying, look, this is not going to stand. This is not going to fly. And in so doing, we actually make that huge jump from childhood into adult life. Because the one thing we were never capable of the in the power dynamics of family system in childhood was the ability to say, hey, no, sorry, dad, <laughs> mom, you need to take a holiday or something. You need to... You need to understand that you can't uh, talk with, to me in that shaming voice. To, to learn to confront and to set, uh, to state basic guidelines to sustain any kind of relationship is the whole purpose of anger. And unless we do that, resentments will keep coming up. They will never be alleviated sitting and just reciting the story and telling other people about how shitty someone is keeps us locked in that activated, armored state. So in the meditation we're going to do, we're actually going to uh, purposely bring up, uh, after we get a little chill, we're going to bring up uh, a, a situation in our life that was someone that's made us angry. And we're actually going to allow ourselves to create a safe container to feel the anger. And then we're going to assure this anger, this what some therapists call inner child, this right hemispheric message that I'm not secure anymore in this relationship. We're going to assure it that we're going to take some action. And that's your adult brain assuring the inner child, as it were, that you're going to do something for it. You're not going to let it stand. And you'll be surprised that when you do this, you'll start to feel the anger 
completely or significantly subside. Because really what it wants is to be heard by being felt and then to be being assured that we're not going to let the same events happen again. So that's going to significantly uh, help uh, start the process of removing resentments. But then for the next part of the meditation, we're going to actively forgive someone that we've done, uh, start the forgiveness process. And how that looks is, very briefly, we're going to bring to mind something that we've done that was unskillful, because it's very challenging. I don't even say it's challenging. It's virtually impossible to forgive someone who's hurt you unless we reflect on the times we've done something unskillful and ask for forgiveness and acknowledge that we deserve forgiveness. So first we're going to seek forgiveness for something that we've done. We're going to forgive ourselves for something. And then we're going to bring to mind someone that we would like to finally get out of the real estate in our brain. We're going to kick them out. Now, forgiving doesn't mean you have to have them back in your life. In fact, you only want to forgive someone after you've set boundaries and you've, dis you've set a ground rules to keep yourself safe. So forgiving is not putting yourself back into a situation where you could be abused or mistreated. So that's what we're going to do. So I hope that was somewhat interesting. Uh, if not, I'll, well, I'll try to do better when I come back. Uh, so find a really comfortable seated position. So, with your eyes closed, just allow your body to wobble a little bit, left to right, front to back, like your top. And then just, without any conscious supervision, allow your body to come to a, sta a stop, a standstill on its own. A, and your body, which is largely organized by right and hemispheric and pre-conscious regions of the parietal lobe, it's, it can actually establish balance for you much better than your thinking mind. The way we try to balance ourselves with our thinking mind is by visualizing how we should look and trying to push ourselves into it and actually very often results in really uncomfortable postures. And then the next is to just tilt your head a little bit what I would say up and back, like by lifting your chin just an inch so that it's like you're looking at a tall building in the distance. And why we're doing this is that just that subtle shift actually can prevent us from slouching. And slouching is the enemy of meditation.
So let's take a few breaths just to really, truly settle in. Take a full in-breath through your nose and lift your shoulders up like you're trying to just reach the ceiling with them. And then as you breathe out through the mouth, rotate, if you like, your shoulders back and drop them in a way that really opens up your chest. So sometimes just by pulling the shoulders a little bit back, really get that sort of proud chest going. And that actually is really helpful in engaging uh, vagal break, which actually slows down. Breathing. blood pressure, circulation. So another full in-breath through the nose and just pushing out or pulling in the belly. Just make it awkward, whichever direction you want. And then as you breathe out, soften the belly. A lot of us have been told from very early years to hold in our bellies, or we believe that that's the way we should carry ourselves. But in your practice, just go for the really soft, pliant, relaxed belly. No one is looking. And then for the third full, complete in-breath through the nose, squinch the muscles in the face, the eyes, lock the jaws. And if you like, you can even squinch the toes and make fists and just to squeeze and then let go. And what we're doing is just sending messages up to the alert regions of the brain, amygdala, insula. We're saying, I'm okay right now. I'm okay, I can relax. Nothing's going on. So for a little while, just pick an ongoing sensation that you can sit with and just observe. Something that you're not creating, but something that's real. The sounds that are arriving from the Bowery below. The breathing in the body, find an area, the chest, the belly, the tip of the nose, where you can observe the in-breath and exhalation, and you can just know the breath when it's happening, when it's not. You could simply observe the lights flickering behind your closed eyelids, closed eye visuals. To settle the awareness, we have to settle our attention. And to settle our attention, we have to find first an object, not an object, but a sensation, I should say, or 
set of stimuli that's happening on our own. It doesn't settle the mind to sit around thinking or telling stories because then we're actually lighting up the brain. We need to just find something that's happening on its own and just relax the awareness so that we can just be with life as it unfolds. If you'd like to work with the breath and it's difficult for you to stay with the breath, you could just count one on the first in-breath and two on the out-breath, three on the next in-breath, four on the out, and then when you reach five on the succeeding in-breath, then start counting down, four on the out, three on the inhalation, two on the exhalation. So you're counting from one to five and back down again with one, three, and five always on the in-breaths and two and four on the out-breaths. And if it's possible, see if you can incline your exhalations to be twice as long as your in-breaths. The longer the exhalation, the more you start to settle the nervous system. Long out-breaths. And if you listen to sounds, just receive the sounds without visualizing where they're occurring, what's creating them. If you hear sounds of voices, just listen to the texture of what voices sound like from a distance without look, listening for words.
I'd invite you to just allow the breath to subside into the background of the stage of awareness. And without too much planning or thought, just allow someone, the image of someone, or the name of someone with whom there is unresolved disappointment, frustration, anger. And while, of course, you could use the obvious political figure, for the point of this meditation, I'd actually invite you to think of a more vulnerable someone who's actually in your life or was in your life, someone who created some degree of pain or agitation And our goal is to skillfully invite the feeling of anger to come into the body, to create a safe container to allow ourselves to actually feel and connect with our anger, not cut it off like so often we were trained to do in our families if we were shamed for our anger. Very often, parents scold children for getting angry. So play around, try first with as little story as you can to trigger some of the anger and see once you start to feel some tension in the face or some tightness begin to mount in the belly or some contraction in the muscles of the chest or some tightening of the neck muscles or maybe just this sense of some activation. Rather than Staying with the story, now bring your awareness to that feeling, what it feels like to just want to push someone away, to want to get rid of something or to say no. This isn't fair. Find that feeling in the body and just be with it. Welcome it. You have every right to feel angry. See if you can actually be with it.
not vent it, not repress it, not run from it, not wallow in it, just be with it, observe it, find what gets hot. And if it's, the feelings start to dissipate, go back, bring up a specific event once again that triggers the anger and then find it again. I often feel it in the muscles right in my neck and my brow furrows and my jaw wants to lock and I just feel a tightening in the micro muscles around the eyes. It's almost like I'm getting ready to shout. Now, if this was happening at home, you could stay with it as long as you needed, but for this practice, at this point, bring to mind something you could do to protect yourself so that this kind of experience won't happen again. What do you need to say or do? How can you reassure this part of ourselves that is, has been wounded that we won't keep putting ourselves in situations where this can happen? How can we adapt? If feeling the feelings was your right brain, then this is the left brain coming up with a solution that you can actually do. And this is an action to be taken. Promise the emotional mind something will do to keep it safe and to not follow through is to abandon ourselves. And then lastly, on to forgiveness. Bring to mind someone with whom you've already taken some form of adaptive action. You've distanced or protected yourself or spoken of your disappointment. Someone who you're now ready to let go of, at least the story. That's who we'll be working with. Before we continue with this person, take a moment to 
reflect on something we've done that we regret, something that we've acknowledged not to do again. Something for which we've appropriately acknowledged to those involved and now we're going to offer our self-forgiveness. If you like, you could bring to mind someone who we've inadvertently or unskillfully in a moment of stress harmed and just bring them to mind and ask their forgiveness to the extent by speech or my actions I have done any harm, I ask your forgiveness. If no one comes to mind that you've harmed, you can bring up something that you've done that caused yourself harm and forgive yourself for that to the extent by speech or action I have harmed myself, I forgive myself. And finally, bringing back to mind the individual that we are going to start the process of forgiving. It takes many iterations of forgiveness often. Bringing them to mind, just as I have sought forgiveness in my life, and just as I deserve forgiveness to the degree that you have done wrong or caused harm by speech or action I forgive you to the degree that I can right now I forgive you so you're going to hear the sound of the bowl momentarily and whatever it is you're feeling right now, don't flush it away, don't push it away. Actually bring it with you into the rest of your evening. Hold on to the feelings and emotions until they dissipate on their own rather than pushing them aside through external preoccupations or by thought. The fundamental act of any spiritual practice is to reconnect with one's heart, and one's heart is essentially one's 
felt emotional life 